In today's day and age, it is very easy to believe what is heard in the media regarding many different controversial topics, such as race. But as a society, do we truly understand race and and how it affects people's daily lives? One case in particular that put the spotlight on race and its relationship with the justice system was the Michael Brown case in 2014. The case demonstrated the public outcry for reform within the justice system, specifically focusing on the source of many of the problems in the justice system, which is police brutality regarding African Americans. Today, the United States makes up about 5% of the world's population and has 21% of the world's prisoners. This statistic is alarming enough. However, even more alarming, most of the makeup of these prisons in the United States are people of color. The justice system having racial racial biases stems all the way back to the slavery era in the United States. According to Linda Holtzman and Leon Sharp, theorists and constructs of race, racism is a core component of the systems and structures of power in our nation. Racial disparities and injustices continue to go on throughout many different systems within the United States, in particular the justice system. Just when the world thought that slavery and racism was being abolished, a whole new war with racism began with America's police. African Americans were specifically targeted by police forces right after slavery was abolished. This was due to officers not knowing what to do with the population and their hatred towards the race. A specific reading that was assigned during the class that explicitly talks about and thoroughly explains the source of inequalities throughout the justice system system, is the rebirth of caste. The rebirth of caste was a very detailed and very hard read, which most classmates agreed with after having a discussion about it in class. The basic structure and organization of the reading discusses the beginnings and endings of different eras, such as slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration. A different credible source that I found while researching for a takeaways post was EJI.org, which stands for the the Equal Justice Initiative. The Equal Justice Initiative believes that racial biases remain a serious problem and is a direct and lasting legacy of American slavery and our failure to deal with the history of racial injustice. The failure to recognize the past has resulted in the continuous issues in the present. Currently, according to the Equal Justice Initiative, people of color are six times more likely to be sent to prison for the same crime as a white person, and one in three men of color will experience prison in their lifetime. Without acknowledging what has occurred in the past, it has directly contributed to why the justice system is currently failing many people of color. The start of injustices in the government starts with the police. Countless cases of media have been reported over the past decade of unnecessary police brutality resulting in mass protesting. One of the most notable cases that people were very upset about that people were very upset about was the Ferguson case. The case case's victim was an 18-year-old African-American Michael Brown who shot multiple times until he passed away from a fatal shot. He didn't even have a weapon. The police are coming into question nowadays with incidents of disarming body cameras and claiming that 
victims have weapons when they do not. Oftentimes, such as the Ferguson case, the police who have murdered individuals are not indicted and are simply put on a notice of leave. The concept of no consequences for the group of people that are supposed to be protecting others has completely gone against the fundamentals of the United States government. The next part of the cycle would be the the prison incarceration system. The majority of people in prison have yet to be convicted of the crime they are serving for. This has directly contributed to the overpopulation rates within prisons, which is another increasing problem within the United States. The next step that is part of the cycle, in my opinion, is the sentencing of African Americans is on, on average much longer than white individuals. To wrap up, according to racial disparity in federal criminal sentences from the Uni- University of Michigan study, an unexplained black and white sentence disparity of approximately 9% remains in our main sample. Party was founding and founded in 1966 in Oakland, California, with the purpose of patrolling African American neighborhoods and protecting residents from acts of police brutality. The party set itself apart from other African American cultural nationalist parties in their belief that not all white people were oppressors and not all African American people were oppressed. A principal stance of the Black Panther Party was that economic exploitation is at the root of all oppression in the United States and abroad, and the abolition of capitalism is a precondition for social justice. This socialist economic outlook put the party in the crosshairs of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's counterintelligence programs, COINTELPRO. In 1969, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover considered the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to national security. The party became more widely known early in 1967 when they marched into the California State Legislature in Sacramento fully armed to protest the Mulford Act, which was a gun control bill, because they viewed it as a method to stop the party's movements to combat police brutality. With this publicity, the party grew to have chapters in 48 states and even in Japan, China, France, and elsewhere. Jeff Chang talks about police brutality in relation to the killing of Michael Brown in 2014. He goes into great detail to explain how Brown's death served as a catalyst in both white and black people's lives. After Brown's death, there were many protests in the area and across the United States. People were outraged that a white man, more specifically a police officer, sworn to protect American citizens, could kill a black man under the guise of self-defense and get away with it. Chang talks about the public support for the cause and how the police responded with seemingly unneeded levels of violence, like the use of military vehicles when the protests were not violent. Aside from protesting, police brutality around the world, the the Black Panther Party also launched more than 35 survival programs and provided help to their local community, including education, tuberculosis testing, (laughs) legal aid, transportation assistance, ambulance service, and the manufacturing and distribution of shoes to poor people. They also started the Free Breakfast for Children program in 1969 that spread to every major American city that had a Black Panther chapter in it. 
Despite these social services, the FBI deemed the Black Panther a communist organization and an enemy of the U.S. government. In a lengthy program against the Black Panther Party led by COINTELPRO, they used provocators, sabotage, misinformation, and lethal force to try and put an end to the party. December 1969 was the climax of the program when there was a five-hour shootout at the Black Panther headquarters in California and Illinois police raid in in which the Chicago Bear Panther leader, Fred Hampton, was killed. Years after, when these extreme measures were revealed, the director of the FBI apologized for wrongful uses of power, but that's too little, too late. In Rebirth of the Cast by Michelle Alexander, she talks about how race is a relatively recent development and how before slavery, there wasn't the type of segregation that we deal with today. A quote reads, racial division was a consequence, not a precondition of slavery, but once it was instituted, it became detached from its initial function and acquired a social potency of all of all its own. I feel like this perfectly explains how police brutality came to be. Races became a tool that people use against each other, and many times it seems to go unpunished. The Black Panther Party sought to call out this gross indecency, and even though the party may not exist today, their ideologies still exist and continue to be fought for. I grew up in a mostly white community and went to a predominantly white school until middle school. My middle school was the most diversity I had seen in that time period. Many of the white kids avoided making friends with other ethnicities except me. My girl best friend was black and the guy best friend I had at the time was mixed. I noticed that my girlfriend, let's call her Mia, was uncannily cautious of her actions. This cautiousness of her behavior is an after effect of the school to prison pipeline. The video Push Out, the criminalization of black girls in schools, states that black girls are suspended at higher rates than any other race or ethnicity by 12%, and that black girls are suspended six times more than white girls. Young black girls are aware of these facts, and it can be psychologically damaging and cause them to be more reclusive and cautious. Push Out also brings to light that one suspension can raise the risk of that child going to juvenile hall. This means that the kid is being introduced into the prison system so young that they have a hard time breaking away. My mixed guy friend, Max, is a perfect example of someone exposed to the prison system young. He was what you would call a trouble child. He got suspended multiple times, got yelled at daily, and was kind of known as a loner. As I got to know him, I learned that his uncle was arrested in front of him at an extremely young age. He got exposed to the prison system so young that he didn't know how to break the cycle. In Marie Gottschalk's piece, The Prison State, she begins to discuss the problems of the justice system and how it creates the school-to-prison pipeline. Gottschalk states, The problem with the carceral state is it is no longer confined to the prison cell and the prison yard and to poor communities and minority groups, if it ever was. This quote can be applied to Max and Mia. The issues of the prisons had leaked into the school system and made it more likely for them to become a part of the prison system young. Gottschalk also states the carceral state directly shapes and in some cases deforms the lives of tens of millions of people who have never served a day in jail or prison or been arrested. 
The present system directly affected their childhood and how they grew up. The fact that at a young age, they have to worry about civil death from having a higher chance of going in a juvenile hall all because of their race is despicable. In Alexander's piece, The Rebirth of the Cast, she explains that race is adaptable as, as well as that race itself is a relatively new concept in society today. If this is the case, it can be stated that our justice system is behaving in a racist manner and damaging the kids of today. Statistics have proven that African Americans are the largest pop population of incarcerated, so not only are the kids more likely to be thrown in jail, but they are also more likely to have family members that are incarcerated, exposing them to the criminal justice system. In the documentary, The House I Live In, which I had watched for another class, it discusses how the ratio of imprisonment is 100 to 1. What this means is for every 100 African Americans in prison, there is one white. The documentary follows families who were fighting against mandatory minimums, which had gotten their kids, ages 17 to 27 approximately, thrown in jail for nonviolent drug crimes. The documentary was a perfect, perfect example of how the school to prison pipeline works. A lot of those kids' families lived in low-income neighborhoods where drug dealing was the only way to survive. Those kids knew and watched people they cared about die or get imprisoned, yet the only option for them was to commit crime. I personally have watched the school-to-prison pipeline occur in my high school. I had friends who, I had, who had learned drug dealing from their families and got sucked in the prison system like they did not matter. The school-to-prison pipeline is a serious problem that is hurting the kids of today and will only continue to hurt the kids of tomorrow if something is not done to change it. With everyone's face buried in the cell phones reading, if it bleeds, it leads news, many are completely ignorant to the issues facing today's society. Many people are out there trying to make a difference, and many people are becoming more educated on the cases like Michael Brown and how little by little we can stop the racism in our justice system. We, have, we the people, have the power to change the future for the kids of today. All it takes is a push in the right direction. So we got a couple questions to answer in regards to our podcast. The first one was, um, will your group include statistics about the population of jails and how this affects our society? Um, yeah, we talked about it a little bit, um, especially how um, younger African-American teenagers and young adults are disproportionately put in jail for nonviolent drug use. The second question we got was, will you be discussing certain cases and juxtaposing how a white person was treated compared to a person of color? Um, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, we talked about the statistics of um, African Americans getting suspended more than white people and how that school to prison pipeline works because the more they get suspended the less time they're spending in school the more time they have to be committing crimes and getting themselves thrown in jail 
The third one we got was less of a question, more of a suggestion. It was, I think if you're focusing on the justice system, it would be interesting to hear what the justice system's goals for improvement are, or what is being done to help with testing or identifying the ethics of police officers. And, um, to be fair, not much is happening with trying to change the criminal justice system. The biggest thing that's happened lately, I'd say, is the First Step Act, which isn't great. Its main goal was to reduce recidivism rates, but it didn't help with decreasing the number of people sent to prison, decreasing the amount of time people spend in prison, or increasing the number of people that got released. So it really didn't help with mass incarceration issues at all. And the fourth question we got was, will you include all the stories that police have portrayed, in which police have portrayed racism against African Americans and all the lives it has affected? Well, we can't include all the stories because they are endless. We did talk about Michael Brown. He was the inspiration for um, our topic. Thank you.